0: This sermon is the second of a two-part series as we look at Jesus going to his hometown and finally preaching in that synagogue. And there's a unique reaction from the people. And what is Jesus' response to the people as he proclaims that he truly is the Messiah? This sermon was originally recorded February 7th, 2016 at Castle Rock Middle School. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, The sermon is the poor. Um, We're continuing our story, so I'll kind of get us back up to speed. And whenever you run into a section in scripture that doesn't make sense, like today's, if you went through the reading, did that make sense? Jesus gives a sermon and then he suddenly jumps into talking about how the widow of Zarephath and Naaman, did that make sense to anyone? It didn't make sense to me either and I thought that's perfect, I should go and talk to everyone about what that means. So I think it does make sense by the end we're in the middle of Jesus. Remember, he's a hometown kind of hero, and his, the, the word about Jesus is starting to spread, and people are starting to know more and more things about him. And that's kind of how it works with hometown heroes. You're not really a big deal until you make it in your own town, and then you go out and make it, and then you come back. So the difference would be, and just imagine I'm not comparing Jesus to like a magician or something like that, but say you grew up and you knew someone who wanted to be like a magician. And they could really impress like the home crowd, right? Everyone loves it. But if they stick around there, and that's the extent of what they do, they're really never that big of a deal, right? So imagine you know someone who played football, and they just stick around, and they, they do really well in high school. What's the difference between someone who's a hometown hero and someone who's not? I think it's the difference between, like, Brett Favre, who just made the, he just made the uh, Hall of Fame. So he went outside of his town and did very well and came back, versus, like, Uncle Rico. So if you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico would fit in that category. He has never left wherever that is, and he's never succeeded, so everyone would look back to it, and the only one who thinks he's a hero is Uncle Rico, right? So the same thing is true no matter what you do. So if you know someone who is um, even a business person or an actor or actress or a, a sports player, you're really not a big deal, a band, until you leave your hometown and come back. Well, that's exactly what's happening. So Jesus, the the hometown would have known him, I think. I mean, they they recognized him as Joseph's son. He grew up, he's dirt poor. And we know that because at least early on when Jesus was dedicated at the temple, they didn't say, we're going to give a lamb. Instead, they have these two pigeons, which are a few cents because they're dirt poor. But Jesus impressed people, the one story we have. He's 12 years old, he goes to the temple. And it says that the chief priests are listening to him. And I'm not saying he's like this guru holding court, but... They're amazed for a 12-year-old, a 7th grader, how much stuff he knows. They're amazed at the questions he asks. They're amazed by all this stuff. So I think people would have tracked him and kept track. Well, suddenly, like, it's time to go public. And they would do that in the Jewish culture at about 30. So at 30 years old, you can't really go teach until you're that age. So at 30, he goes and he's, like, kind of making his debut. Then it happens in a couple of ways. His first miracle... He goes to a wedding at Cana, and his mom is kind of ready for this, and he changes gallons and gallons of water into wine. I'm guessing people heard about it, don't you think? Yeah, I, I, I think so. So I'm guessing people would have heard about it. The, the other one is in the desert. He had a relative, but just imagine they're not relatives. And down by Plum Creek, there's a guy who's, um, he, he would seem, I think, kind of nuts because he wears just camel hair, And he eats bugs and sugar. That's all he eats, bugs and honey, locusts and honey. That's what he lives off. And he's single, imagine that. And I don't know if there's a lot of prospects working out there. So he's a single guy down by the thing. And he has one of the shortest sermons of all time, which is repent. Like again and again and again. A pretty intense guy. We're talking about John the Baptizer. Well, one day Jesus goes down there. And you can imagine we're all down there just to see the spectacle of this guy. And he points to Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People had to start murmuring, like, what does this mean? That same time, what appears to be a dove comes on his shoulder and God's voice comes down and says, this is my son, I'm, I'm well pleased with him. So the word is starting to spread about this guy. In fact, some of John the Baptizer's followers, now leave John the Baptizer, he tells him, go ahead, I'm not worthy, he says, to tie this guy's shoes. So go. And they start to follow Jesus, and he's getting a bigger and bigger following as he goes and he preaches. So he would go to the synagogues, he would go and he would just preach. And people are amazed, it says in Scripture, by the authority in which he preaches, and they're just amazed at what he says. And on top of that, he's doing miracles. So now he has made it, you could say, outside of his hometown, would we agree? Yeah, so this, he's a big deal outside of his hometown. So now the day is coming where he's actually going to come back to his hometown. So you can imagine the murmur that would have gone. So if someone was in Castle Rock and... All right, we said we had Amy Adams. We, we, we're run, we don't have a lot here in Castle Rock. So we got Amy Adams. Imagine she was going to come and sing over at the high school for, she was going to have one of the lead roles. I think we'd go. For, if it's $10 tickets, I would go. I'm watching high schoolers for $10. I would go watch Amy Adams in this lead role. So this would be a big deal. So you can imagine the synagogue is maybe packed. I'm just, I mean, I'm adding to this maybe, and I'm not sure. But everyone's in there with this anticipation of like, now he's going to talk and we get to see it in person. So he's there and we said we went through the process if they do what the synagogue always did. So the synagogue would mean they asked Jesus to be the leader that day. And he would go and he'd stand up and he would go through the liturgy kind of like we just did. And then he would sit down and they'd have other guys read from the law, like seven, eight of them. And then now it's time for like the sermon. So the hand of the scroll of Isaiah, they lay it out. He finds the spot and if tradition says what they did, he would read it in Hebrew from the, um, from the scroll and then it would be translated into Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew biblical Hebrew, so they would translate it in aramaic and then this is my favorite part um if we want to be a real biblical congregation um, the people would remain standing and the teacher would sit down so i tweaked my knee on wednesday i think this to be biblical i think this is what we should do we should just trade spots but so that's what would happen they'd all stand and then he would talk so it says like the eyes are all fascinated not fascinated probably fascinated but fastened on him and they want to hear what he's going to say and remember this is the section that he read The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, he said he he follows up with one of the shortest sermons up after that, where he says, I'm the guy. Like, this is the story of the Messiah, I'm the guy. What would you anticipate the reaction would be? Like if I just stood in front of you, I mean this is and said, I'm the savior of the world. What would you, I hope some of you would have objections. You know, I would hope you would be like, Ah, Savior of the world doesn't hurt his knee, you know. <laughs> like so the so you think something would happen, but let's just pause here for a second. Um, we, we they knew that the, the Messiah was gonna come. They knew that. It was just a matter of a win and who it was. So they needed help identifying who this person was who was going to be the savior of the world. So they knew, we always spend time on the time part and the place part. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. Or at Christmas time, we read passages that say where he came from. He comes, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you're small from the clans of Judah, out of you is going to be one for me, a ruler. So they go, okay, it's from Bethlehem. But there's a number of passages that we would call like the servant passages that talk about the one who's going to come. And this is one of them. So here's how you identify that, the, that this is actually the Messiah who comes. And how do we know that as proof? So I'm going to jump ahead a few, past, uh, few chapters. John the Baptizer, that same guy who was down by Plum Creek, and um, comes all the way up, and now he's in prison, and he's going to face his death. Now, there's a few things that are worth dying for, but wouldn't you want to make sure, like it's true, you know, I'll die for something if it's an important cause, but could you imagine how embarrassing it would be, like, in your last second? You, you're dying, like, for the cause, and you're like, wait, you lied to us? I mean, how, that would be the worst. So I think there's a number of commentaries. Some think that John the Baptizer sends his disciples to go talk to Jesus for the sake of the disciples. If it's me and I'm in prison, I'd want to know for sure that this was the Messiah. So that's his question. He says, go, go talk to Jesus and find out, is he really the guy? And here's the proof that Jesus says, here's how you know I'm the right guy. He didn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah. Right? Because it's like when someone lies all the time. And I'm not saying Jesus did, obviously. But if someone lies all the time, they always tell you how truthful they are, right? So it doesn't really mean much if you just say to the guy, but Jesus says, tell you what. Just look at the evidence. And this is from John chapter 7, uh, Luke chapter 7. So he replied to the messengers, this is Jesus. Go back and report to John the baptizer what you have seen and heard. Does this sound familiar? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Does that sound familiar? It's the very section, essentially, that, and parts of it, that Jesus just read to this group of people. So Jesus is now standing in front of the people. No one had any doubt. He just basically said, here's how you know the Messiah is going to come, and his sermon is the shortest one ever. Not quite, I think it is the shortest sermon ever. we got a couple short ones. John the baptizer's repent. Uh, Jonah's got a super short one. So Jonah gets off out of the belly of the fish. He goes to, do you remember his sermon? To the people of Nineveh? He did not read 101 sermon illustrations. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Eight, 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 that's it. That's his sermon to the people. Jesus is very similar, eight words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You would think, you would think if someone stands up and you've been waiting for th- literally thousands of years for the Messiah of the world to come and someone stands before you and says, I'm it. They would either be bowed to their knees, they would be prostrate or they would be furious and say, how dare you even say that? Here's what they say. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. It almost sounds like a Garrison Keillor story. Ooh, isn't that Joseph's son? How about that? I mean, way to go, Joseph, son. Doesn't it almost seem like that? So he goes, I told you when I got to preach my first sermon, um, everyone is super nice. Like, I told you, I don't know if anyone heard anything, but afterwards they just say, good job. No one says, like, that was really meaningful and I could hear uh, God work through you. No, no, they just said, good job. Like, they're thankful I didn't say the wrong thing. That's what they said to Jesus after he just said he's the Messiah of the world who has come to save the blind. and the, the. So what does that mean? Does that even make sense? The only way I think it makes sense is this. When they heard, you always look at things through a grid. So here's, here's goggles. I think when anyone says anything, all of us are forced to kind of send it through our own filters, right? We would admit that. Some people say, I have no filters. That's not true. Their filters, they don't even know they have a filter, right? So the same thing is true with anything. So when you meet someone, and uh, if you always think, woe is me, and someone says, there's something I've got to tell you, you assume it's bad, right? Other people are optimists, and they say, I have something I have to talk about. And you're like, sweet, because this is going to be good, right? So you have different filters that you kind of run things through. The people there, I think, would have had a filter, just like we have a filter. Our, our job, when we look at the Bible, is to try and eliminate as much of that filter as possible, and say, what does God's word say? The people there would have had a filter. And I'm guessing, this is a guess based on Jesus' reaction a little bit, that their filter would have been this. We're kind of the good people. We're doing the right things. We're the chosen people. And we come and we go to the synagogue every Saturday. And ethnically, we're, we're Jewish people. We're not like the other people out there. Um, we always do the right things. We're, we're dedicated We're not immoral. And then they look outside the the, the door of the synagogue, and who would they see? There's the Roman people who ethnically are very different, so they're not too impressed, they're not Jewish. They are immoral as far as sexually immoral. They they worship false gods and they just think, like, can you believe that? Politically, they have different ideas, and they think, look, those are all those people, but here's our idea. So when Jesus stands in front of them, this is how I envision it. Jesus says, okay, the the people who are oppressed are going to be free, who do they, who do they think he's talking about? That would be us, right? And then, Okay, and now um, we're prisoners and we need to be freed. I think that would be us. And then he said, I can't remember the third one. And then the fourth one, he says, the blind, not us. I don't know what that means. They have no idea what that means. So Jesus is coming up before them and saying, hey, I hear where you're coming from. You're oppressed. You're the good people here and it if we do the right things, God is obviously going to deliver us. That's what's going to happen, right? And, and God cares for us. And he's going to send a Messiah who's going to help us out. And we have all these Romans outside of this. We have all these bad people. God's going to save us from the bad people and the good people. So when they hear Jesus say, I'm the guy, they say, I think that sounds pretty good. Sign us up. Let's do it. Can you think of another time in scripture where that happens? There's time. So, it, it, so this is our reaction. Jesus obviously thinks they have the wrong reaction because this is the next section. Jesus said to them, now, now just imagine this, my first sermon. The people are on their way out of my home church and on their way they say, hey, nice job. Jared, you did a fantastic job. Aren't you Dennis's son? And I would say, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Can you imagine the reaction of the people as I'm shaking hands? And then I say to them, Do here in your hometown. You're probably going to want me to do in my hometown what I've been doing everywhere else. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in a region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman and Syrian. Okay, so Jesus goes from talking about the spiritually poor, and the people, I think, are going, yep, uh, they're talking about the poor, that's us. We're, we're downtrodden, uh, we've been oppressed, and God is going to bring freedom. Now the people are saying that's us, and I don't think it is. Because Jesus now says, let me just tell you how God works. He could have gone to anybody in Israel and he chose to go instead to this widow. And this widow is a what? Total outsider. She probably worships false gods, although she knew of the true God we see in the story. She's um, destitute and far away and has no money. That's who they chose to go to. He goes, let me tell you another story. There's all kinds of people that were sick in your ethnically pure towns, but instead I went to a different town Where a guy does, he's a murderer, he's a commander, he um, worships false gods. That's where I choose to go. So, there are a couple things we can pull from this. When God talks about preaching to the poor, is he talking about actually the physically poor? I don't think we would jump to that conclusion because Naaman was loaded. So, that's not it. So, I mean, you can't step back and say, "Uh, so it's not just the physically poor. What does he mean? What does he mean when he has come to preach to the poor? There's a story in the Bible where I think that this comes the most clear. There's a couple ways that you can rebel against God. And I stole this from a guy named Timothy Keller, so, and we've talked about it before. A couple ways that you can rebel against God, and I think the story that shows it the best is the prodigal son, if you know that story. So option one is the most obvious. And I think all of us to some degree associate with that. So option one is the son says to his father, I'm kind of done with you. Can you give me the money that you're going to give me when you die? So I wish you were kind of dead. Can you just give me the cash so I can go live it up? So he does. So he takes the money, and he goes to the foreign land. It says he lives it up, and it says wild living and prostitutes and parties. And then the other son, and he eventually runs out. And he's looking at the food that the pigs are eating, which cannot be good, and says, you know what? Why don't I just go back to my dad? And, Dad, you don't have to accept me. You know, I rebelled against you. You don't have to accept me as a son. Just, can I just work? You know, can, I just, can I be there? Because it's way better than this. So he comes back, and you know the story. It's a beautiful story as the father in that culture runs out to his son and embraces him and says, let's throw a party. That's option one, right? And, and I think in some part, parts of our life, usually when you're younger, you can associate with that idea. You don't really want God in your life. Well, you could say that with parents, too. Sometimes you don't want your parents in your life. And, and you rebel. You see that kid who does that, and they say, I'm going to get control um, by running away and saying, take that, and your parents are sad, and you're always wondering what's happening to you, and their heart goes out to you, um, that's how, there's control there, right? If one of my kids would run away and do whatever they wanted, there's control because it would consume my thoughts. The other possibility is the other son. So the other son is still, if you know the story, the other son is still at home, and he sees the party going on. It says in a distance, and he's like, oh, come on. And and I think if you have brothers or sisters, and most of you, if you're here on a Sunday, there's a pretty good chance you're the good kids. Um, If you've had brothers or sisters who have rebelled and they do something again and again and again, and somehow your parents, you talk to them and they're like, well, so we lend them some more money. You're like, oh, come on. Or we did this, or we're doing that. And you're like, really? If you're the good kid, that's really where it is. Happen. so you can associate and, and whenever I heard the story I always thought well I've never rebelled so that makes me pretty good until you realize that there, there's two sons and the one stands back and says I've always done what you asked I've always done it like why aren't you throwing a party for me and the underlying idea is one son tries to control their dad by just rebelling and the other one thought they could somehow control their parents by doing the right thing all the time And what happens if you think you can control people by doing the right thing all the time and they don't do it? How do you feel about that? So let me give you an example. Um, You work for someone and they said, hey, we really got to get this project done. And you say, you know what? I'm going to get her done. And so you work all these hours. You work double overtimes. You're sacrificing all this stuff. You skip your trips. You take calls when you're on the days off. And then you get done and they don't give you the bonus that they promised. How would you feel about that? Would you be mad? I think I'd be mad. Which means, I thought if I did this, I was going to get this reward. That's, I'm trying to control the situation by what I do. Let me give it maybe a little more personal. Imagine you're in a relationship, and this happens in relationships. You, um, the one person has done something wrong, and you say, you know what? I'm going to be the nicest, kindest person I've ever... Maybe you just watched like the... What are some of those Kirk Cameron movies? Like the Love Dare or something. like. I don't know what they're called. Um, so you say, I'm going to do all the right things. Not out of necessarily full love in my heart, but to say, I'm going to get an end result. So you're in a relationship with your parents, you're in a relationship with your kids, and you say, I'm going to do all the right things with an anticipated result, and that result doesn't come, how do you feel? Do you like it? Or do you get mad? Jesus stands before the people on the synagogue Saturday, and they say, hey, we're the good people, we've always been doing things right, We've always done the right things, and God's going to come through for us. And sometimes in our own life, I think that comes through in our prayers. We think if I do the right things and I pray, God's supposed to come through for me. If I'm generous with my offerings, there's no way God would ever let me run into any financial struggles. God, there's certain things that I know you want. I I raise my kids. I take them to church. There's, There's benefits that are supposed to come to me, and when they don't come, it's pretty easy to be pretty angry. Jesus stands before the people, and he says this. Don't just have a big smile on your face because I'm the Messiah. I could have gone anywhere, and I'm not actually coming to you. You're not the poor I'm talking about. Because God reaches to the fringes, and God reaches to those who are spiritually poor. What does it mean to be spiritually poor? We'll go back to our story of the prodigal son. Which one was able to look inside themselves? Or Thomas, which was a great example. Look inside himself, and no matter how hard he tried, said, there's no way I'm going to touch that bottle. There's no way I can gel. I need someone's help. The spiritually poor that we're talking about in this story that Jesus has come for is the person that can look in their own life, a Naaman, a widow, and say, there is nothing inside me. I got nothing here. And even if things look great on the outside, like Naaman, he's rich, he's got all this stuff, everything looks great on the outside, you still look inside and say, God, there is nothing I can bring to the table. I just can't. I need your help. The people that were sitting in that synagogue that day and why Jesus talks like this instead of saying thanks for saying I have a nice sermon is because they thought they had enough things going for them that they didn't really have to need someone's help. I heard a term for it and they said it's spiritually middle class. So the spiritually poor recognize I'm so lost and broken. There's only three classes, I think, spiritually wealthy, spiritually poor, and then spiritually middle class, and I'll explain it. Spiritually poor recognize I'm so broken, I need someone's help. And who gives you the spiritual wealth? Christ, right? Christ says, I'm going to bring you right over to here. I'm going to give you all my inheritance, all the things I've ever owned and have. These are yours. You are now spiritually wealthy. Spiritual middle class would fit into this. This is probably most of us. Um, Not spiritually middle class. I've got to be real careful. If you're a middle class person and you get a job, um, are you very thankful for that job? Like you apply for it. Are you like, oh, I did not deserve this job. I mean, when I got a call here, I did not fall on my knees and say like, oh, this, if you knew my past, right? I, I feel like I've worked hard in school. I, ha- I worked hard at my previous job and my work. I was not surprised when I got a call to go somewhere else. I'm guessing with your jobs. If you're pretty good at your job, you're not surprised that you get the job, are you? How many of you have gotten a job and you're like, can't believe they hired me? Is it, right? Middle class people do not do that. There is not a single person who has their house or has their car has their stuff that thinks like there is, this is just by the grace of the government that I have this house. No one does that, right? It is only you who's gotten there, right? And so that makes sense, and I'm not just jumping on us because we're middle class. The spiritual per person recognizes if you really had no money and no skills and someone steps in and says, hey, I see you need a job, I'm going to give you a job, would you appreciate that job? If you didn't have the skills, of course you would. Of course you would. And if you're wealthy, you don't need that job. But the problem is in this in-between, and I think that's where those people were in a synagogue, and I think it's a spot where sometimes I fall. That spiritually, I'm pretty good, right? In my mind, spiritually, you ever feel that way? I do a pretty good job. That's a dangerous spot to be in. Because Christ did not come for the spiritual middle class. He comes for the spiritually poor that says, I have nothing to bring. There's nothing I can bring to my table. Because when you recognize it there, you fall on your knees when he says, I am the Savior, and you worship. And you said, I am so thankful for what you've given me. Help me jump here, Lord. Skip this middle part. Help me jump from here to the wealth of forgiveness and love and eternal benefits that are mine. One more thing. As we talk about poor... Spiritually poor and money, and I thought, I don't talk about money much. The Bible talks about money literally 20 or 30 times more than sexual immorality and things like that. So let me just talk about it in two seconds. Um, number one, Jesus obviously didn't come to just the spiritually, I mean, the, the physically poor, right? But do you ever notice how often that actually happens historically? Historically, anecdotally, Jesus is going to the people who are on the fringes. We're not really in the fringes, so I think we've got to step back sometimes and take a look. Jesus is trying to meet the marginalized. Jesus goes to the people where they're hurting. What does that have to do with our money? Um, If you're spiritually poor, and I think this would be a good test, you take a look at the passages that the Bible says about money, and if they're terrifying, I think we have to take a step back. When I read about the Old Testament, it says, okay, here's generally how money works. The Old Testament, give 10% or more away. Is that terrifying? then maybe just maybe you're starting to drift to this middle part and you're thinking maybe just maybe money's more than just money maybe to you money is security maybe to you money is status maybe to you money is your value and what god does when he picks us from this side to being totally depraved to this side he says all the wealth that i've given you is just a gift and when you recognize that money's just money and the reason I bring this up is in order to reach the marginalized and not just us, we've got to use our money. And we're conduits that God has given us. And here would be another test. Do you have friends in your own social class? I'm not saying you've got to be poor. I don't say that at all. But if you have friends in your social class, if they knew how much money you gave away or they knew what you're willing to give up, do they think you're crazy? Then you might be... God is allowing you to make this jump to see that money is just money. If people look at you and see the luxuries that you could have with the amount of money you have, and you say, you know what, I just don't need that because there's spiritually poor people who don't know the gospel, who are on the fringes, and I need to use my money to jump from here to here so that people can hear that message. So where do we sit? Jesus has the shortest sermon ever, and you would think that people would bow down and worship instead they say like, hey, that's a good plan. Let's go with it. Jesus opens their eyes and says, my friends, I'm not talking to you. You've got to be real careful because you're sitting in this middle area. You're sitting in this middle area and you think you've done enough that God. you're going to control God with what you do. This, this Lenten season, as we start this Ash Wednesday, let's go right back here and say, God, I have nothing. And it's only through you that I have something. And I think that changes a lot of things, who you love, how you talk, and I think it also changes how you use your money. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we we saw your message. You talked about reaching the poor, and we know that it's not necessarily just the physically poor, um, spiritually poor. We pray that we have hearts that recognize that inside there's really nothing that we bring to the table. And in mercy and forgiveness and hope and um, thankfulness, we recognize that you have come. You were rich. You had everything, and you came to this earth You could have had the biggest mansions. You could have everything. Instead, you chose to not even own a home, have anything, and to to walk this earth to reach those who are marginalized. Help us with open eyes recognize that the wealth we have spiritually is only from you and the wealth physically we have is just from you. Help us to use that and leverage that in amazing ways to reach people who still don't know you. Not just us, but those who are marginalized, those who are hurting, those who spiritually are lost, broken, uh, maybe have immorality in their life. uh, They're hurting Help us have open eyes to say that we're in the same spot. We're not spiritually middle class. We're spiritually poor and only spiritually rich because of you and your forgiveness. Amen.